Welcome to Stacktrace, the podcast that is all about life and technology from two developers' perspectives. And those two developers are me, John Sundell, and my good friend, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going, Mr. Rambo? I'm great, John. How are you? I'm doing great as well. And this is a quite special episode for multiple reasons which we're about to find out more about and one of those reasons is that we've now been doing this show for four whole years this week marks the four-year anniversary of us starting Stacktrace. so i guess uh, happy four-year anniversary mr rambo yeah happy four-year anniversary it, it's really weird that we've been doing this for four years like it doesn't feel like that long but it's quite a long time, right? Four years. Uh, and But I guess as we grow older, uh, it's more common for us to have been doing the same thing for more years <laughs> than usual. Uh, so yeah, I'm really happy that we've managed to keep it going for all of this time. And, and yeah, it doesn't seem like we're stopping now. So there are many years to come and I'm sure... We'll be celebrating many anniversaries of Stacktrace going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at the episode number, like this is episode number 178. That kind of indicates that we've been doing it for a while, right? Because, you know, it's quite a large number. And it's funny when you look at producing something like this over a longer period of time, like producing 178 episodes, if someone would have told me like beforehand to say, could you produce 178 podcast episodes? I would probably say... Whoa, that sounds like a lot. I'm not sure if I would be up for that (laughs) task. It's kind of similar with my articles where I just recently crossed the 500 mark, where I've been now publishing 500 different articles. If someone would have set me that challenge to say, hey, can you write 500 articles? I would say the same thing. Like, that sounds really overwhelming. But when you do it like routinely, like one after the other, like one a week, one a week, it becomes a routine. And then after a while, you look back and you're like, whoa, I've been doing this for four years now. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And if someone wants to go back and listen to the very first episode of Stacktrace, which was titled Phone Apps, really? Uh, If you want (laughs) to go back to that, we'll leave a link in the show notes. We don't have the full back catalog in the feed, but we're looking into fixing that. And yeah, it's quite a trip back memory lane. Like March 15th, 2018, we were talking about the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone SDK and... We were talking about the rumor of Marzipan. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, of course, became Mac Catalyst. And yeah. uh, back in the day when it seemed like such a you know really revolutionary idea to be able to share code between an ios app and a mac app which now with catalyst and swift ui and and all these other technologies uh we've we've sort of sort of coming to a point now where it's becoming a lot more normal and easier to do that kind of code sharing but when we first started the show 4 years ago it was definitely not easy to do and there was like a lot of talk and a lot of different strategies around how can you actually make that kind of code sharing happen given that Back then, there was no kind of unifying UI frameworks between the Mac and iOS. Yeah, definitely. So it's very interesting to go back and also good to see that we've improved. At least I feel that way, that like both our delivery of the podcast has improved, the format has improved, even our choice of topics has improved. So uh, at least I feel like the podcast has improved over these four years. I hope our listeners feel the same. But uh, yeah, it's it's really nice to to look back and, and see how things have changed. Absolutely. And I think one key thing to keep something going over multiple years is that 
you do want things to change, right? You yeah. do want things to improve. And in order to even have the opportunity to improve, I think you need to be open to changing things and trying new things, right? That's, I think that's a kind of life lesson I've learned personally, <laughs> you know, uh, just in my kind of career and my private life is like the more open-minded you are and you try new things, some things you might reject and say, hey, this was not a good fit for me or a good fit for this product. But at least trying new things, I think is really important. And also not just sticking to things just because you've been doing it for a while, like the classic, like we've always been doing it this way in this company, you know, like that yeah. kind of anti-pattern, uh. like trying to get out of that and trying to like, let's try something new. Let's see where it goes. Because the worst thing that can kind of happen is that you revert back to the previous commits, right? Like you revert <laughs> back to what you used to do. And I think so far we've been doing that a couple of times now. We've been trying new things. Like we had the Stack Trace Arcade for a while. We had the Stack Trace Relaxation Corner, or what was it called? Like when we were talking zone. about our, the Chill Zone, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, we've tried introducing segments like that, and some of them have stuck around, and some of them have evolved into something different. Like our "What Have We Been Up To" segment, I think, kind of came out of those ideas. And I think that's just something that I've learned from doing this podcast and and doing my other things as well with Swift by Sundell is that if you try new formats and you try new segments, you can kind of evolve the thing you're making and make it better over time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think this is a good segue to an announcement, right? It is. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost as if I was planning this all along. <laughs> so we have a pretty big announcement to make here on our four-year anniversary episode and that is that Stacktrace is actually going to leave 9to5Mac and become a completely independent, self-published show again. So those of you who have been listening to Stacktrace for a couple of years now, or maybe even since we started, uh, might know that initially when we started this show, we were self-publishing it. We had our own website, our own RSS feeds. We were doing the show completely by ourselves. And then eventually in the beginning of 2019, we joined 9to5Mac and 9to5Mac became the show's publisher. And we've been with them now for three years and it's been really, really great. We've been very, very happy uh, being part of the 9to5Mac network and working with them for these three years. It's been absolutely fantastic. But now we feel like it's time to go back to being an independent show again, to self-publish the show by ourselves and to start a new chapter, uh, if you will, for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, we're going indie again. And the main reason is because we want Stacktrace to become a hobby once again. Because it's not like that we were, oh my God, we're working 24 hours a day on Stacktrace. But uh, it, it became more a more serious quote thing for us, like more of a a work commitment, uh, but we've decided that we want Stacktrace to be a hobby again, which it never stopped being at the same time. Like, we joke all the time on this show that we like to do programming and we do it as both our jobs and as a hobby, and sometimes those things get mixed up together in, in a good way. And with podcasting, it's kind of the same, but... At least for now, we've decided that podcasting for us is a hobby and we'll go back to it being a hobby for us, which 
absolutely does not mean that the quality of this show is going to decline in any way. It will be a hobby podcast, but with professional quality, right? <laughs> that's at <laughs> yeah. least our goal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good way of phrasing it. And, uh, you know, being part of a publishing network like 9to5Mac, and there are many other podcast publishing networks out there, of course, it comes with certain commitments, right? And it comes with, like, you know, sticking to a certain schedule and so on that we've been doing, like, weekly shows. And it's not that, you know, that was kind of enforced upon us or something, but it's just something you kind of sign up for because part of being part of a publishing network is also that you get help with things like sponsor sales, which is amazing. Like, that's something we're also very grateful for 9to5Mac for is that they've helped us sign up a lot of great sponsors for this show and helped us fund the show for these three years. It's been really great. Uh, but of course, that also meant that we we had to kind of stick to that schedule because we had ads booked and we had to... to uh, you know, manage all of that. And that kind of comes with uh, some amount of complexity and pressure also, if you will, like, you know, producing a show kind of week after week like that and having it be more like a job in that sense, uh, like you said, Rambo, where, you know, you are getting paid for it. So it is kind of a job. Uh, and now what we want to really do is to, like you said, go back to quote unquote, it being more like a hobby, which will mean that we will do much, much fewer sponsorships. We will focus less on that. We will more do the show just because we want to do it, because it's something we enjoy doing, and hopefully you'll keep enjoying to listen to us. And it will just be a more kind of less commercial, more just a fun kind of hobby project kind of thing that we're doing, uh, which I think will work out really great for, for everyone in the long run. Yeah, and all of this to say, not that like 9to5Mac as a podcast network, they're like super demanding with these very strict rules and uh, fines if we don't follow the scan. No, it's nothing like that. Like they're like the best people I've worked with in, in my career. Like this, the whole team there, it's such nice people and it's extremely flexible. It's just our personal decision. It has nothing to do with the network. So if you have a podcast that's been negotiating with 9to5Max or, or something, <laughs> don't, yeah, don't think that we're leaving because uh, they're bad or something. No, absolutely not. Uh, they're the best. It's just a personal decision, nothing to do with anything like that. No, I think they, they've been absolutely fantastic, like I said, and, and we're super grateful for all of their support and have nothing but great things to say about them. It's like you said, it's just more like a personal thing and it's more like how we want to relate to this podcast, right? Like we yeah. don't want it to be something we're doing for like commercial reasons or as a job. We want it to be just like a fun hobby project. And that's not to say that we will never have sponsors again or we will never attempt to kind of quote unquote monetize this show <laughs> again, like because it's great to get financial support, of course. And we've done that through different means in the past. We had a Patreon at uh, one time and we're, we're looking into uh, doing something like that maybe again in the future, maybe some kind of Patreon or memberships or sponsors again. We will see like, this is not something that we're focused on right now. For now, we just want to keep doing a great show as good as we can possibly make it with just less pressure and just more kind of flexibility because we're going to be completely independent and we can kind of make our own decisions. Again, not because 9to5Mac we're making decisions for us, but just because it's easier when you're just two people making decisions than when you're part of some bigger network. Absolutely. So uh, what does this mean for our listeners? What You know when uh, a big company acquires like a, a company, in this case, it's kind of the opposite thing that's happening, but they always say nothing is changing. <laughs> and then, of course, <laughs> yeah. everything changes. But in this case, we are doing 
a change of schedule, right? Exactly. So uh, like I mentioned there, one of the reasons kind of also why we want to do this is to give ourselves a little bit more flexibility when it comes to the schedule, uh, where we want to be able to still do a great podcast and talk to you regularly, but maybe not with the same amount of frequency and also to be able to move episodes around from time to time when we are traveling or we're just really busy with other work and so on. Because one thing that we haven't done so far and I never want to do is to do an episode just because we had one scheduled, right? Like we want to do one because we have something to say, because we have something interesting to talk about. And that's kind of what we want to focus on. So the schedule going forward will be that we will do two episodes per month. So in practice, that will mean that we will typically do an episode every second week. It will typically be published on Wednesdays, like it has been weekly for the last three years, but now it will be bi-weekly instead. But we're saying two episodes per month rather than bi-weekly, because again, we want to give ourselves that flexibility to, if there's an Apple event, or if we're traveling, or if there's something else going on, to move things around a little bit, to make it a little bit more flexible. So that's going to be our schedule going forward. Uh, But like I mentioned, there will be way fewer ads as well, so there will be less focus on sponsorships. And you are not going to need to unsubscribe or subscribe to a new feed or something like that. Everything should be super smoothly transitioned. Famous last words, but let's (laughs) hope that everything works. So I think overall, what you're going to get as a listener is fewer episodes per month. That's true. But you're going to get fewer ads and you're going to get hopefully even higher quality content, like higher quality discussions with, with us. So that's at least our plan. Yeah, the technical bit, I hope it goes well. So we have everything ready. It's just a flip of a switch, uh, supposedly. And it's probably going to happen later this week or maybe during the weekend. So if something happens, like if your podcast client re-downloads every episode or something, that's why. Like, it shouldn't happen. Uh, we've done everything we can to make it not happen. <laughs> but there, there is going to be a switchover and uh, yeah, it, it might happen. And I think uh, if you have signed up for or subscribed to the podcast, I think the new term now is follow, right? You follow right. the podcast. Yeah. But I, I think if you followed the podcast by manually copying the feed URL from like 9to5Mac's website, I think then maybe you won't get the episodes once the switchover happens. So uh, there's this caveat in there. But I think the vast majority of people probably just follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcasts. And for those people, nothing should happen. You should just keep getting the episodes as normal. Yeah, I think one thing we could say is if you haven't gotten a new episode by the end of next week, so which would be the uh, 27th of March, uh, if you haven't gotten an episode by then, then you should probably check if you <laughs> are still subscribed to the right feed. <laughs> yeah, correct. Uh, another just minor change as well is uh, how you can reach us. So, you know, we have this Ask Stack Trace segment, which of course you can keep tweeting those questions with hashtag Ask Stack Trace. That is not going to change. But we have a different email address now that we're moving uh, to our own website again. So we're going to resurrect our old, old website, which is stacktracepodcast.fm. So that's where you're going to find all the show notes and everything going forward. Of course, you'll also keep finding them in your podcast player, but you can head over to that website once it's going to be up, uh, hopefully later this week as we record. Uh, But our new email address will be ask at stacktracepodcast.fm. So if you want to ask us a question, you can email ask at stacktracepodcast.fm. Simple as that. Yep. 
So I think that's all of the kind of, you know, technicalities when it comes to the move, but hopefully everything else will just be completely automatic and we can keep doing the show. I hope it's going to keep being something that everyone enjoys listening to. And I am really excited about this. Uh, I think it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, Rambo. So with that programming change uh, notification done, let's now move on to our What Have We Been Up To segment. So what have you been up to? So I've gotten my first ever CVE. CVE? <laughs> is that a uh, like a resume, but electronically? Like Circulum Vitae Electronicanica? <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, for those who don't know, CVE is short for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. And it's uh, this public list of disclosed computer security vulnerabilities. And... It's kind of like a, a, quote, badge of honor for people who, who aspire to work in InfoSec to have a CV assigned to a vulnerability that they have disclosed. And I've gotten my first one with a macOS 12.3, CV 2022-22660. It's my first ever CV. Yay! <laughs> All right. So can you walk us through the process of like what was involved in your kind of security research here, how you came up with the vulnerability, how you reported it, and, and eventually this uh, CVE was created? Yeah, so there's a whole write-up on my blog, which we'll definitely link here. And the way it works with computer vulnerabilities or website vulnerabilities and things like that there is this process called responsible disclosure. And what it means is that if you are a white hat hacker, so like you are a hacker, but you're not a bad hacker, you want to hack for good, not for bad, uh, which is my case, I when, when you follow that process, when you find some security issue, security vulnerability on a website or an app or any computer system, basically, you should report that to the company or person responsible for that website, app, system, whatever. And you should not disclose this issue publicly until it has been addressed. And then there's a lot of gray area around like how much time you should give the company or the people responsible uh, before you disclose it uh, some people say like if they haven't fixed it in 90 days then you should disclose it there are lots of discussions around that but i'm not going to go into that so the gist of it is that if you find a security vulnerability in in something you should first privately disclose that to whoever is responsible for the system that has the vulnerability which is what i've done so Back in December 2020, to be more specific, and... A little uh, bit more than 90 days ago. Yeah, so right, right away you can tell that the 90-day thing wouldn't have worked with Apple, but that's not news for people in InfoSec. But uh, let's keep going. So more specifically, December 23rd, 2020. So looking at the date, December 23rd, you can already tell like what my frame of mind probably was uh, during that day. I was probably bored, didn't have much to do. So I went poking around to try to find something interesting. And in my case, in macOS, which is my main area of research when I'm doing this uh, InfoSec stuff. And it's not something I do very often, but uh, 
you know me, like I like doing spelunking and I have found before security vulnerabilities kind of accidentally researching something for my work or just poking around to see how something works. But in this case, I was kind of actively trying to find something and I discovered this uh, vulnerability, which was, you know, those verify your Apple ID things you get on macOS and iOS and it's really annoying. Yeah, when it's like asking you to re-log in like multiple times, especially mm -hmm. when you set up a new computer. Yeah, exactly. And also when you set up a new device and it, it says like, oh, please finish setting up Apple Pay or finish whatever. So that's all handled by a system on Apple's OSs, including macOS called uh, Car Follow-Up. Uh, I think it's a really nice name, actually. Follow up. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's follow up on this subject. So it's a system called Car Follow Up. Uh, the framework is Car Follow Up, and there's the Follow Up D, so the Follow Up Daemon, which is what handles all of the communication. Because as you might imagine, since this does a bunch of follow up related things, it does things for Apple Pay and for Apple Ser other Apple services and for uh, the Apple ID sign-in and iCloud, so all sorts of different services. So basically, different teams within Apple need to be able to post these follow-up messages on the system uh, in order to have it be a kind of an organized way. So you can think of it as kind of like a private mechanism for Apple to send notifications to users, uh, and in a way that multiple systems can do that in a standardized way without being like, oh, Apple Pay does this thing and Apple ID does this other thing. So it, the, the existence of the system makes perfect sense. And I think it was well designed in that sense. But the problem was that back in the version of macOS that I was running when I first discovered this vulnerability, the system was not verifying that the process that was talking to this daemon actually had the right to say things to the user. <laughs> so basically what that meant was that any process, so any executable, any app uh, on, on your Mac could send one of those, hey, please verify your Apple ID, and it would show up as a notification with the Apple ID logo and it will show within the System Preferences app that little badge and the banner and the message that showed up was could be fully customizable by the app. And even the link that would open when you clicked the Verify Now button could be completely controlled by the attacker in this case. So just to be, just to be clear, this is not just like the, an app that has push notification permissions trying to spoof a notification. This was a full-blown, like, the app doesn't even have your permission to send notifications, but it could. And the, notifica the notification looked like it came from system preferences, and it showed up within the system preferences app, within the Apple ID pane, like with the official UI. And I, I think you can probably imagine what a bad actor could do, right? <laughs> Which is exactly what I've done in my proof of concept. There is a video in the post that we'll link in the show notes where I made this little app that would throw uh, scary looking 
alerts. Uh, please confirm your Apple ID within the next 24 hours to preserve access to Apple services. And then there was a button, verify now. When you click the button, it would open a URL scheme controlled by the app and the app would put up a fake Apple ID login UI that would presumably then send your credentials to the attacker. But of course, I didn't go that far. I wasn't actually trying to hack people. I was just <laughs> making a proof of concept. Uh, so, so yeah, continuing on the process, uh, I did all of that. I created this proof of concept Xcode project. I submitted it to Apple security. So they have a, an email uh, where you send these disclosures. It's not feedback, uh, so it's a different process. It's completely separate from feedback reports. And in uh, so this was over the holidays. So in January 11, so basically when they came back to the office, I got a reply confirming that they were investigating it. Then in February of 2021, I got a reply that they would fix it in a future update. In April 26, 2021, they released macOS 11.3 with a partial fix. So the partial fix was you couldn't you could no longer send the user to any URL. There was an allow list. And so only Apple approved URLs could be opened through this mechanism. So that was a very effective fix at preventing the attack from succeeding. Like it could still be annoying in the sense that any app could still send unsolicited notifications through the system, but it it like prevented the attack from succeeding, basically. Yeah, because you couldn't redirect users to your own web server to like get their credentials. Yeah, or like to a, a URL scheme that would open the, the attacker's app. Yeah. Right. Um, then on August uh, 31st of 2021, I got a bug bounty payment from Apple, which was surprising. Like, I wasn't expecting a bug bounty. I didn't do it for a bug bounty. Uh, so it was good that I got a bug bounty payment from Apple. Uh, it's disclosed on the post. It was $5,000. And uh, I, of course, I was very happy. Like, it, Whenever you get a a big lump of money that you wasn't expecting, it's always good, right? <laughs> so of course, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so I I was happy that that I got it. Uh, I know many people are probably going to think that this amount should be higher, given that it's Apple and the severity and all of that. But I'm not gonna go into that. Uh, I I probably agree, but I'm not gonna go into that. Um, and then finally, uh, on March fourteenth, twenty twenty two, so a few days ago macOS 12.3 was released uh, with the final fix. And the final fix was to require a special private entitlement to talk to the follow-up daemon. And I think the timeline here, first of all, it's not great, right? Because it took almost two years for the issue to be fully addressed. But it also shows that probably whenever this follow-up system was initially conceived, they just didn't consider this attack vector. So this was a big like miss uh, by Apple in terms of the potential for exploitation on, on the system because these demons that run, so these background processes that allow other processes to talk to them, effectively when your process can talk to this demon, it gets special privileges that the demon has that your process doesn't. 
Of course, most of the time it doesn't involve like arbitrary code execution, which would be even worse uh, because like some of these demons even run as like a root user or some other more entitled user. Uh, but it shows to me that like when the system was originally conceived, they just didn't consider this possibility, uh, which was a, a big miss. But to be clear, like the vast majority, or at least like all of the the system processes that I've checked, they all have some sort of authentication to prevent this sort of thing from happening. So I think this was like something that slipped through the cracks. Yeah, and securing a system like this, like holistically, when you have multiple parts talking to each other, can be really, really difficult. And especially when you can use a more privileged process or subsystem as a kind of proxy when performing the attack, like in this case, right? Like we've yeah. talked about it in the context of applications where if you embed a malicious framework into your app, or it doesn't have to be that the framework is malicious, but maybe some malicious code was snuck into this framework that is otherwise like a great framework, then that code becomes elevated in terms of privileges because it runs in your environment, right? Like it within yeah. your app. And it's the same thing here pretty much where it's like, because you could talk to that demon like without any authentication, you could kind of sneak in there and get those elevated privileges. It's it's a different kind of technical setup than the app and the framework relationship, but it's kind of a similar type of attack. Yeah, it's kind of like my app doesn't have the permission to send notifications to the user, but this daemon does. So I was using this daemon's privileges to do that. Uh, and this doesn't mean that just by protecting the daemon it's solved. There's another aspect which is like, I think in the case of follow-up specifically, it uses a SQLite database on disk to store like those messages. So if you could manipulate that database on disk, you could also do the same thing. But of course, with uh, system integrity protection and the other things that Apple has been introducing in that area, that also becomes like a, an unviable attack vector, at least in the most common situation. But to be clear, in the case of my attack, this could be done in a Mac with system integrity protection enabled, with like all of the security settings enabled, I think I even sent the Apple security team a notarized build of the app. <laughs> the, the app could be sandboxed. It didn't matter. It could even be a sandboxed app. So, so yeah, it was a pretty uh, bad one. And, um, yeah, it, it was definitely a, a bad vulnerability. Uh, I'm glad it's fixed. And, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I, I got my first CVE. So, to be clear, like, the CVE was... Um, Apple is the one who assigned the, the CV. So basically these companies, they reserve like a, a block of CV numbers. And then when there's a new release, like in, in the case they released earlier this week, macOS 12.3 and all of the, the other OSs, then they post the security release notes to their website with the CV numbers. And I got credited there with my company name and everything. So that, that was also cool. Like there's my name on Apple's website. Uh, so it is not the first time I was credited on Apple's website for a vulnerability. Uh, I had been credited a long time ago. I think it was like in 2011 or something. Uh, but there was no bug bounty back then. And I don't even know if they were assigning CVEs back then. So 
yeah, but uh, we're really happy about this. Uh, not happy that the vulnerability existed, but happy that I was able to uh, figure it out and help them fix it or at least identify it and looking forward to doing more of this in the future. Yeah, that's super cool. So big congratulations on this. Like, uh, great work. And, you know, you made the system more secure for everybody in the end, right? So that's fantastic. And it's pretty clear here that what Apple was doing, even though it took them a while to do it, but they first addressed like the most severe attack vector or the most severe consequences that could happen, right? With the first initial fix. Yeah. And then they did a complete fix later. And, you know, this is a strategy that I think is in general good to take. Of course, you would hope that uh, security vulnerabilities would be fixed sooner, but I can also imagine that Apple gets quite a lot of these reported to them, given just how popular they are and you know how, how popular their products are and, and how much of a kind of focus they are for the entire community of, of software developers and security researchers. But I think in general, like it's it's an approach that is good to take is that first you kind of address the most severe problem and that kind of buys you some time and then you can work on a more kind of sophisticated fix over time, which is like fully kind of fixing the problem. Yeah, and I think in this case, uh, first of all, there's no evidence that this was ever exploited in the wild, like there actually some bad actor used this. Um, so like, yeah, the vulnerability is there, but... If like no one knows about it, it's kind of like oh well, no one knows about it. <laughs> let's let's try to to work around the edges a little bit. And probably the main reason for it taking this long was they didn't want to break a bunch of stuff that used this system because yeah, there's the uh, there's the whole thing. And you mentioned like how big the the OS is and things like that. And that's what we call like an attack surface. And Apple's attack surface is huge, like with all of the different OSs and all of the demons they run and the system processes and things like that. They're, they have a huge attack surface. And uh, in the case of this particular system, it looks like a bunch of teams within Apple were relying on the system for their follow-up messaging. Like I mentioned, Apple ID, Siri, and... Apple Pay and all of that stuff. So it's a, a huge coordination effort that, that had to happen. So I think it was also like an organizational issue in a sense. And I've even seen some evidence of that in the actual demon itself because I was, of course, monitoring like the changes they, they were doing to the demon over the time. And I noticed that they introduced this new entitlement uh, a while back and they were checking for the entitlement in the daemon, but they were not denying the connection if the entitlement didn't exist. They were logging an analytics event for right. the failure. So they were probably like trying to figure out after they've introduced this entitlement, let's see if there's still some system or some other team using the daemon and without the entitlement so that we can address it before like we break their stuff and there was probably i don't know how it that works internally but there was probably like a radar or a memo or something hey if your team uses car follow-up you will need this entitlement by this date otherwise it will stop working there was probably something like that that happened as well yeah and that's a big challenge in general with distributed systems like we tend to talk about a lot of the advantages of distributed systems which are, are many like you can iterate on a big suite of products kind of independently and they're less coupled and, you know, you get better architectural benefits and so on. 
And of course, here you're dealing with a pretty massive distributed system in the OS itself, right? And yeah. then the challenge is, how do you know who is actually using this API? Or how do you know who is using this feature or the subsystem or this daemon? The only way you can really tell is at runtime because, well, everything is kind of dynamic and decoupled. So unless you, you perform like some kind of static analysis on all of the repositories and the code bases that are involved, the only way you really have is to log something for a while and then figure out who is actually calling this in a kind of unsupported way and then tell them to migrate and, and make that happen over time. And like you said, I know, f you know from experience working with big companies, these things are often more organizational issues than there are technical issues because actually writing the code or embedding that entitlement into your binary is usually like, you know, an hour's worth of work, <laughs> but actually getting all those teams to synchronize and getting that information across is usually the, the bigger part of the problem. Yeah, also, as far as I'm aware, I've heard this from, from some people from Apple, it's not like Apple's teams can add entitlements willy-nilly to their stuff. <laughs> like, they have a process where you actually, it, it's almost, I'm sure it's not as uh, complicated, Not not that it's complicated, but I mean, it's probably more lenient in a sense, but they have a process where they have to actually ask for the entitlement. Like, it's not like, oh, you can put any entitlement you want. That's fine. No, of course not, because <laughs> then it would be uh, really insecure, uh, like, for any team to be able to use any entitlement they want. So, yeah, definitely an organizational issue as well involved with this. Do you think the Siri and Apple Pay team need to submit their apps for review and then they would be rejected? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this always reminds me of that uh, keynote, I think, where um, Steve Jobs was talking about iMovie and then he said, like, oh, it's going to be in the App Store by this date. And then he says, if we approve it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a, a funny a funny one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, happy happy about having helped Apple fix this. We'll try to, to do more of this in the future if time permits. But now I want to enter the John SwiftUI game corner. <laughs> All right, my favorite corner, the SwiftUI-based game corner. So I just wanted to follow up. I think I mentioned this on maybe the previous episodes or two weeks ago or something like that, that I wanted to follow up on my SwiftUI-based game project. So I've been working quite a bit on this, actually, like in my spare time and been dedicating some work hours to it as well because I feel like it's a, it's a really interesting project for me for, for many different reasons. First, it's fun to work on, like a, to build a game with my friends. But it's also like really interesting just to see how SwiftUI performs and continues to perform as I scale this project up. So just do a, to do a very quick recap, what this project is, is I have this turn-based strategy game that I've been working on for many years now using many different rendering engines. And it's kind of one of my primary kind of hobby projects. And I just recently migrated it so that it's now rendering all of its graphics, not just the UI, but the, all of the graphics, all of the animations, everything using SwiftUI. And of course, whenever I use SwiftUI, I don't approach it with this 100% SwiftUI mentality. Like I am always super fine with mixing in core animation, mixing in AppKit and UIKit into SwiftUI. I think that's a very big strength of SwiftUI as a framework. And I've mentioned that many times. Uh, uh, so it's not that it's a pure 100% SwiftUI project, it, it uses still core animation and AppKit and UIKit and so on uh, in certain places, but the whole whole kind of application, the whole infrastructure, the whole rendering pipeline, everything is all based on SwiftUI, like what you're seeing on the screen. And we leave a link in the show notes again to one of my tweets where I show the game in action. 
uh, what you're seeing is an actual Swift UI view, right? There's a, there's a whole Swift UI view hierarchy in the game. And uh, it's been interesting because initially I was very surprised to see that Swift UI performs so well in this kind of context. I wouldn't think that Swift UI would be a good game development tool, but here we are. Uh, but just like core animation uh, before it, which I was using directly before for this game, uh, it turns out that Swift UI being a UI framework is a really capable 2D drawing engine. And Apple has been spending a lot of time and effort optimizing the framework to work really well, even if you have a large amount of views. And here we're talking about like hundreds of views being animated on the screen. And even as I keep adding more effects and other visuals and you know, draw more frames. Everything just keeps performing really wonderfully across all the devices that I'm testing on, all the way back to my iPhone 10 and my iPad Pro. Like, it's all running at 60 frames per second, super smoothly, which is super great. But what I want to talk about today is um, something that I think also relates to uh, actual app development with SwiftUI and a more kind of mainstream use case, not the <laughs> strange game development edge case that I'm working on over here, uh, but rather like when it comes to, uh, if you want to have multiple views where you want to use the, the same kind of rendering, but powered by different logic under the hood. Mm. So of course, one way to make that happen is to inject different models into your views, right? Where let's say, in, in my case, I will give the concrete example of the game that I'm working on. I have the actual game view where you're playing the game. And then I also have a map editor embedded into the app. So you can actually build your own maps in the game, which I think is pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. uh, so you can construct your own scenarios and send them to friends and play together on your own custom maps. But of course, I didn't want to replicate all of the rendering code for the map builder and for the game, right? Like I want yeah. the map builder to essentially be just in the game, but in map builder mode and the game to be the same thing, but in the actual game mode. So there are a couple of different ways I could have done that. I could have, like I said, injected like different models or maybe set some flag, which is like, is map builder true false or something like that. Uh, but I didn't feel like that was very scalable. And typically these sorts of solutions aren't very scalable, where if you start adding these Boolean flags everywhere, you start having all these kind of permutations of how what kind of state your view can be in, and you end up just having this massive logic code that has to check all of these if-else everywhere, and it becomes really messy. I'm sure you've uh, encountered this yourself, Rambo, in certain other situations, right? Yeah, well, and uh, when I come across a situation like that in the Swift days... Like there are multiple booleans, the answer usually ends up being an enum of some sort. When when there is like a bunch of different booleans in in the same location, either I have to switch to some sort of enum, uh, sometimes with associated uh, values, or some other type. Uh, was that part of the solution there? So that's a solution that I very often go to when I have distinct states. So a great example there is you have a view that can be in a, like a loading state, a rendering state, and a failure state, right? That's a perfect use case for an enum because those are three distinct states and you can never be in one, both states at the same time, right? Yeah. So you can never be in the both loading and loaded state, like you're in one or the other. But in this case, it was a little bit different where... I do only have two use cases. I have the game use case and the map editor use case, but I didn't really want to make all of my code aware of those two things. Like I didn't want to have to check everywhere, like 
if is map editor, do this, else do this, because it would just complicate the code. And, you know, the code where I'm handling, like, the actual game logic, like the pathfinding for the characters and the, you know, game rules and everything, I didn't want to have to check there if you're in the map editor mode, because it doesn't feel like that code should be concerned with that. Yeah. So, uh, in this case, I wanted to do a, go with a different strategy, and I ended up going with, or deciding that I wanted to go more, li- like, with a protocol-oriented approach, where I wanted to have, like, a map controller protocol that then I can have two concrete implementations of, uh, one game controller and one map editor controller, so that I have a shared interface, two implementations, and then the game controller can be just completely focused on running the game, and the map editor controller can be completely focused on running the map editor. So that's a kind of a nice kind of separation there between the two with a unifying protocol. But then the problem is if you have those as an observed object in your view, you can't really make them a protocol because you get that classic error of uh, this protocol does not conform to itself or, you know, like you get an error where you can't use the protocol directly there. But the good news is you can then just turn it into a generic. So I ended up creating a map view, which is a generic over a controller, which conforms to the map controller protocol. And the good news then is that the map view can just talk to that controller through that protocol using that shared interface to to send it events like this coordinate was just selected or uh, the game just started rendering or the game was paused and and kind of these common events that that would happen for both the map editor and for the actual game controller so that worked out really well but then you kind of end up with another problem or I did at least where then that map view starts becoming quite large right yeah. because then the map view needs to cater to both of those two use cases uh, but then it was just a matter of kind of using swift ui's very composition-friendly design where you can easily embed a view inside of another view. And then I started splitting those things up so you have multiple different views that can then be composed together. So I ended up with one map editor view and one game view, which can then embed that map view that I talked about earlier along with other kinds of controls and things that it wants to render specifically for those specific use cases. But I'm bringing all of this up because I think it can be really useful to keep these things in mind if you're working with SwiftUI, where you can usually embed different kinds of logic behind a protocol. And then you can usually split views up into smaller pieces that can then be brought together, kind of like Lego blocks, so that you can kind of form your end feature, which is what I did here. And that's what I meant with this kind of being a very informative project for me, because I'm discovering some of these techniques and I'm I'm kind of experimenting with them in this different environment, which I can then also apply to my freelancing work and my kind of app development work as well. Because even if I'm building a game with SwiftUI, sure, like the actual content that's being rendered is very different, but I think the kind of architectural principles and things that I'm kind of discovering at a different scale or in a different kind of context can also be applicable in, in other cases. And I definitely think this is one of them. That's really interesting. I, I'm really curious about the approach you took for observable object there, because that's something I faced before and I didn't figure out a solution really. So the way I, I usually end up having to do it when I want to inject a protocol is I will wrap that in an observable object that takes that protocol. So how exactly are you able to to have a protocol that can be used as like a... Is it like a, an observed object or what type of property wrapper, property wrapper is it in your view itself? Yeah, so let's uh, write some code on a podcast here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. basically what I have is I have that map controller protocol and it inherits from observable object. So in Swift in, Swift in general, you can always base a protocol on another protocol. So just Mm -hmm. like how Hashable derives from Equatable, 
like using quote unquote inheritance, you can do the same thing with your own protocol. So I've declared a, a map controller protocol, which using the colon, it inherits from observable objects. So it requires all implementations of the map controller protocol to also be observable objects. But of course, observable objects doesn't actually have any real requirements. So it's just kind of a marker protocol, right? Yeah. But that enables those implementations to be used using the at observed object property wrapper. But then, like I mentioned, the problem is I can't say at observed object controller is a map controller because I can't use that protocol directly there. It wouldn't satisfy the requirements from the compiler. So instead, what I did is I took my map view and I made it a generic over a controller type, which has to conform to map controller. So it becomes a generic view with a generic controller type, which needs to conform to map controller. And then my at observed object variable is of the type controller. So that oh. means that you can use this view with any type that conforms to that controller protocol. And that's how I achieve that same interface for multiple controllers, but using the same view. Yeah, so that part I understood and it's what I figured out you've done. I, I've come so far, but uh, what about like at published properties? Uh, yeah, that, that's a tricky one because <laughs> you can't require a protocol to have at published properties as of Swift 5.5 and even 5.6 that was just released. Yeah. So, but I don't think that's a huge issue. So if you think about it, like a protocol is a contract, right? It's a contract you have to conform to. And it would be nice to be able to say these four properties need to be published but at the end of the day, the only contract really that you can enforce through a protocol is that that data exists. The fact that it's published and that it updates the view, it's kind of an implementation detail of the implementer. Because you can imagine situations where maybe the map editor only wants to expose certain data as read-only and it shouldn't update the view. It's like constant, right? Mm -hmm. And the game has a dynamic data for the same property. So then each controller can choose what to mark as at published and it's not enforced by the compiler. Uh, you could, of course, write some like test or something that, that walks through the properties using reflection and then checks that each of them is published or something, but I didn't go that far. I felt like each controller can decide what it wants to publish to the view. The only thing that the protocol will enforce is that the data is there. Oh, interesting. So, so you can have the property itself be a requirement of the protocol, but then in the implementation, you mark it as published. Exactly. That's exactly ah, what I did. And nice. in fact, right now already, there's a difference between what the map editor and the game does in terms of what properties it does mark as published. Because yeah. like I just mentioned, some data in the uh, map editor use case is just static. Like, uh, for example, uh, the, the, the colors that I'm using for the characters in the game, they will be customizable. So each player can decide what color they want their units to have. But in the map editor, I just want to use red and blue, right? Just co static color. So I'm just having that as a static piece of data. Oh, that, that, that's really interesting. I, I guess I have some code to refactor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's a bit, been a big pretty, like, um, debate I've seen uh, regarding uh, protocols and SwiftUI in the community is like, some people are really kind of upset over the fact that you can't mark properties as published. And, and don't get me wrong, like, I wish that we could do that. I think that would be useful. But like I said, I also think it's sort of useful to say, that it's an implementation detail, what you mark as published. It's just like how you can say that something should have a delegate, but you can't enforce how that delegate should be called. That's an implementation detail, right? Yeah. So I feel like the same thing is kind of true here, is that if the if the type wants to publish something, it should that should be that type's decision, I feel like. Yeah, that, that makes sense. 
Cool. So uh, we're, we're probably going to keep visiting uh, Rambo's security corner and John's SwiftUI-based game corner in the future, even on our independent new version of Stacktrace uh, coming up soon. Uh, but let's wrap up this uh, final episode as part of the 9to5 network with an Ask Stacktrace question. So Rambo, are you ready for Ask Stacktrace? Absolutely. All right. And we've got a question here from Deman or D-Man. Sorry if I mispronounced that there. But the question is, how do people with multiple projects that we're working on decide what to prioritize? And how do you split your focus? And Deman says here, I am struggling to juggle my attention and time between my existing apps and projects and new ones. So I think this is a very, very common issue that a lot of developers face, both of us included, where the shiny new project in Xcode can sometimes be really appealing and you really want to work on that, but what you maybe should be working on is an existing project. So Rambo, do you face these issues as well? And how do you kind of split your time between the two? Oh, it's a constant struggle. (laughs) Uh, So in my case, it's uh, a bit... I, I don't know if it makes it easier or what, but... I have one project in particular, which is what pays the bills, which is everybody. So I can't really justify taking too much time away from it, especially when there's some pressure like, oh, there's a new OS coming up that breaks something or there's some major bug or some major feature that I want to ship by a given date. I simply cannot justify working on other things. But at the same time, I also need to keep looking into other things in order to not have all eggs in one basket and uh, explore new ideas and things. I have a huge uh, reminders list here that I actually call app ideas and it has 27 items in it currently. Oh, wow. And they all end with buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not not all of them, but yeah. And uh, I have at least one other app that I've been working on and off for I think almost a year now that I'm super excited about, but it's a a bit of a big project that I plan on cutting some scope in order to be able to ship it at some point this year. But at the same time, I it's funny how like everybody has been around since 2019 and it's a very mature project and it has lots and lots of features, but there's so much stuff I want to do. Like I have the, I have I think more than 200 open issues in the GitHub repo. And I would say most of them are some form of enhancement or idea for a new feature. And of course, uh, another part is like bug fixes. But yeah, it's, it's really hard. I struggle with this myself. But the way I try to work around it is to allow myself every now and then almost like a, a hackathon kind of thing where... I'll take a day or maybe a morning, but it's usually like a whole day where, oh, today I won't work on my main project, which in this case is everybody. I'll get grab like an idea from this list or something that was on my head yesterday and I'll take a couple of hours to try to do it. Or, oh, I have this thing I wanted to do in one of my open source projects or one of my other apps. Let me take a couple of hours to go and do it. Uh, And so that's what I do. But in my case, I am in that situation where this is my job uh, and it's what makes me a living. So I can't like take too much time away from my main project. Uh, So 
yeah, I in my case, it's like what makes me the most money is what I will focus <laughs> most of my time on. I think that's like the smart thing to do right now. But at the same time, allowing every now and then, like once per week, usually sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more to explore other things. Yeah, I think that's a good strategy. I think the general kind of good practice for anyone running their own business is to balance short-term and long-term investments, right? Yeah. And I think that's also true for people who are not running their own business, like people who are employees at a company or working in some other context is you do always want to strike a nice balance between short-term and long-term in terms of your career, where if you only focus on the short-term, you only focus on the project you're currently working on, the app you're you're shipping or the, the team you're working on, the product you're working on, if you only focus 100% on that all the time, then you risk also kind of, quote-unquote, falling behind in terms of learning new technologies, in terms of progressing your own career, your own personal development, and so on. So I think it's always you always want to have some kind of a split. And that doesn't mean that you can do 50-50, because most people, I, I think, can't, right? Like, even you and me, like, we're, we're working in an independent way, but we also have commitments, right? Like, we have clients we work on, we have products we work on, and so on. So we can't just, like, take half of our time or more and spend it on you know, hobby projects or or new projects and new apps. We need to, like you said, focus on what is actually our business focused on right now, right? Yeah. But So I think it will be different for every person, like how you can split your time. But I think having some kind of split is really important. And how I deal with that as someone who does work on multiple projects, I have multiple clients I work with. I work, of course, on Swift by Sundell, on Stacktrace, and on, on other things, on the game, like I just mentioned, and publish and other kinds of things. So I do have to always manage my time. And the way I've come up with a system to do that that I like a lot is that I take everything that is like a really like, quote unquote, strict commitment, where, for example, when I work with a client, I will typically commit to a certain number of hours every week or certain deadlines or certain projects and deliverables and so on. Those I always want to focus on first, because those are like the, you know, that's the most important for me for uh, for that relationship with the clients and for the projects I work on, for the teams I work on, to to be a, reli- a reliable, good person to work with. So I, mm-hmm. those I always focus very strongly on. And of course, also with my articles and, and doing this podcast and these sort of weekly, bi-weekly, monthly things I have going on, those are also a really strong focus. So what I do every week is that I time box things. So I say, okay, this week I will work 20 hours on freelancing, for example. I would work 10 hours on articles and podcasting stuff. And... I try to do that as as early in the week as possible. So typically, if it's 30 hours of work, that would mean that it will be done either sometime on Wednesday or on Thursday, working kind of eight hours per day. And the cool thing about that is that most of the time, it if I do things according to plan, which of course, things don't always go according to plan, but when it does, it usually leaves my Friday open for whatever I want. And that kind of serves as a nice reward for me to actually get all of my other work done early in the week. So you might have seen me post articles these days, uh, like on Tuesdays or on Wednesdays or something, sometimes on Fridays when I didn't get that good focus in the early in the week. But I try to do all of that work early in the week as possible. And then a later part of the week, I'm free. I kind of done all of my commitments. I fulfilled all of my commitments and I'm free to just work on quote unquote, whatever I want. And that doesn't mean that I just sit down and play Xbox for the rest of the week. I mean, sometimes I do just to relax because I think it's also important to give yourself time to relax. But most of the time what I will then work on is stuff like the game project and hobby projects and and maintaining my, my, my open source projects and things like that. Because 
that is stuff that I also want to do. It's also work, but it's not the same same kind of time-sensitive uh, commitments and things like that that I have with my client work and other things. So that's typically how I deal with this, is that I basically rank things in order of importance. I work on the most important things first every single week, and then the rest of the week I'm free to just explore new ideas, experiment, work on, on side projects, and that works out really well for me. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. The thing that does not work for me is something that they mentioned in the question, how do you split focus? I think splitting focus does not work, at least not for me. So Yeah, me neither. If I bounce around a lot during a day, which does happen sometimes, uh, eventually like it does happen, but I try to avoid it as much as possible. But if I bounce from thing to thing on, on within the same day, uh, there's like this unit for me that is the day, the work day. And within that day, I can't really focus on multiple things in terms of like actual coding projects. It, it It's one thing. If I bounce around too much, I feel like I haven't achieved anything by the end of the day, which is usually mostly true because I was splitting my focus and that just does not work for me. Yeah, I really like the unit of a day as well. Like if I'm going to work on a client project, I would much rather just spend a whole day working on it than to work like two hours here, two hours there, three hours here, three hours there, right? Like I would much rather just sit down Focus, like, be really efficient, like, do all my tasks for that day, get it done, send them a test flight, you know, everything is great. Uh, but of course, sometimes that doesn't work out, like, sometimes you, your attention is needed elsewhere and you kind of bounce around, like you said, but that's definitely some, not something I'm planning for. Like, I want every day to have a theme, and if I can't get that to happen, or if I have a smaller thing I need to do, like... Writing an article, for example, doesn't typically take a whole day for me. It typically takes like half a day. And then I split up just simple before lunch and after lunch. So maybe I write the article in the morning and then I try to finish it by, by the time I will have lunch. And then the afternoon can be spent on something else. So that also works for me. But I don't want to like dive in and start micromanaging every single hour in my calendar. Like I want things to be either be focused on every day or focused on, you know, half a day. And of course, this is different for people who are working as freelancers or independent or people who work in a company, because when you work in a company, you typically don't have like, you know, you can do your tasks for the week and then the rest of the week you can do whatever you want. I mean, I think that would be a pretty interesting setup to have in a company, but uh, you know, that's not how most teams work. But I think you can still achieve a similar thing in your own kind of personal kind of planning where you might have certain things that are higher priority or lower priority. You try to do them early in the week, like the higher priority ones, and you try to kind of split things up on a half day or day basis. And I think that could work out as well. But I'm saying all of this not to say that everyone should follow my system or everyone should follow Rambo's system. I think it's clear that me and Rambo even, we have different systems that work for us. And I think that's just the kind of uh, point here is that try to experiment and analyze how things are going and what is working and what is not working for you and come up with a way of working that fits you and your team and everyone around you and that honors all of your commitments and so on, I think that's the key, like, to to come up with that because it will be very, very individual. But I think there are some good practices to follow. I think most people are, don't work very well with 50 things to do at once. I think most people work better with one thing at a time. 
But yeah, coming up with an ideal system would be different for everyone, I think. Absolutely. Great. So I hope you all enjoyed listening to this uh, final episode as part of the 9 to 5 Mac network. But like we mentioned, the show is not going anywhere. It's going to be around. We're going to keep doing it for as long as we possibly can. And I hope that you'll continue to follow us and uh, enjoy Stacktrace, even as we now go independent again and start publishing the show ourselves. Uh, To wrap up this episode, we, of course, want to thank all of you for listening to the show. And just a very special thanks again to the folks over at 9to5Mac for publishing the show for the last three years, for helping us out, for helping us with sponsor sales, for helping us manage the show, growing it, and really just being great hosts for Stacktrace. So thanks so much to everyone at 9to5Mac, and uh, thanks again for listening, and we look forward to talk to you again next week on our first independent episode. So until then, say goodbye, Mr. Rambo. Goodbye.